Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7 a.m. I'm Zoya. In the studio we have George. Good morning. And Ayan. Good morning. And it is a lovely day outside and it is going to be a fantastic fantastic show <laughs> I, I am so so excited we have so many interesting things so why don't we get started yes. and we I'll should say thank you to the radio yeah. show. <laughs> <laughs> as I was about to go what have we got on today I'm like no let's there's something very, something very self-centered right now here, Zoya. There's something we've no. missed. Something we've missed. Something. The Radioactive Show. Thank yes. you so, so much to them. And towards the end of their show, they were playing Electric Fields, who I just absolutely love and saw last week. And we actually, this is a delightful segue into what we have on the show yes, because true. Electric Fields will be coming up in part of that conversation. So, up first, what do we have? I are, and I believe we have some, um, after the news, we have yeah. a pre-record from... Mm-hmm. So I, yesterday, thanks to George, George, incredible George, not only does George bring us good music, but she's able to get in contact with very important people. It was all you, Ayan, and you know it. Okay, all right, let's share the love. It takes a village to, what is it, build an interview? interview. <laughs> we interview. There you go. So George was able to get in contact with Maxine's people, and then I was able to interview Maxine yesterday. And we Maxine who? Maxine, sorry. Look I, mean, me. I mean, look, she's like Cher. She's she is like the Maxine. But, <laughs> but, but, the Maxine. <laughs> but Maxine Beniba Clark, who, as you know, is a writer, a poet, she's an incredible person. Um, so I had a chat with her about an event that she has coming up on October the 17th at the State Library of Victoria. And the event is called On Writing and Risk. Maxine Beniba Clark on the State of the Writing Nation. So in that interview, we looked at things like who decides what work is um, considered risky or considered dangerous? And do the people deciding that, does that make a difference? And um, just also being aware that the risks are out there and how do you navigate that? If you know there's risks, what steps do you take to sort of protect yourself, I suppose? Um, But, yeah, it was very incredible and George and I, we were just talking about how hard it was to get Maxine come on to Tuesday breakfast. <laughs> like, we love you, Maxine, but you are a slippery, <laughs> slippery person. Um, George got there. Yeah. <laughs> George just put through one email and they were like, yeah, we're feeling George. <laughs> so that's our headliner. Yes. 
Yes. So that's coming up at 7.15. We have Maxine speaking, and I cannot wait to hear that. It then, will be silent in the studio for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got my coffee ready. I've got my snacks. I'm just going to be like just sitting there, bated breath. Mm. After that, we have Zoe Condliffe, who is the CEO and founder of She's a Crowd, an online database of women's stories aimed at preventing gender-based violence. So it's looking at how technology or she's created this startup where technology and stories come together to try and build an online community and there's almost sort of mapping people's stories to try and address gender-based violence Mm. so that's going to be really really interesting that's very cool yeah 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 she's out of monash university the uh xxy lab and i believe we've had some people on here speaking about that before so i'm really excited yeah absolutely then at 7 45 who do we have so we've got jill gallagher who is the victorian treaty advancement commissioner and she'll be talking about the future dreaming festival so this is where the link to electric fields comes in Mm. This event is this Saturday, October the 19th, so it's called the uh, the Future Dreaming Festival, and it will feature some really cool artists, including Electric Fields and the Marindas, and it's sort of about, I guess, pushing for treaty and bringing people together to celebrate years of black strength, resilience and excellence. Mm. So it sounds really cool. Looking forward to talking with her. Fantastic. And it's free, is is it not? I think so, yeah, yeah. I think... I think maybe that there might be donations. Free of it, yeah. Fantastic. Yes. Then at 7.45, oh no, we've already said that one, at 8 o'clock, this, this show is just so full, at 8 o'clock we have Ali Hogg from Queer Space who has started Rainbow, or was a found, one of the founders of Rainbow Rebellion, an activist group of queer people, speaking about the Religious Discrimination Bill, which right. still hasn't gone away and is coming at the, uh, end of this, at the end of this month. Christian Porter would like to have it introduced by the end of this month. He just announced yesterday. So... That is going to be uh, an interesting conversation. And that's our usual monthly or, you know, about monthly queer space Mm. residency, Mm. one might say. And lastly, we'll be talking to Jatinda Cow, who is a Brisbane-based social worker. And she was featured a couple of months ago on SBS The Feed. They had a little segment on migrant women who um, experience family violence and how visa their, their visa status is brought into the violence. And we've talked a lot on the show about how people that use harm will use any tactics that are available to them to hurt someone. But I guess the, the multiple oppressions that migrant women face when they're in those precarious positions as a result of their visa status. Mm. So we'll, we'll be talking to her. She's been working in this field for 15 years, so she has a lot of experience. And I'm really interested to hear... Uh, um, her thoughts on how it's changed yeah. and and what needs to happen now to, in order to uh, make sure that there are adequate supports for people in these situations because it seems like it's a very significant thing that's going mm. on at the moment. Very, very mm. important. Mm. God, I love it. Why yeah. am I acting like I'm hearing off the first time? I'm just <laughs> so impressed with everybody and... <laughs> oh, this yeah, is going to be, well. you know, this is going to be, I think, one of our... One of our when they look back... When no, we don't become, say that. Don't jinx us. I haven't done the show yet. Please <laughs> don't jinx us. <laughs> Please. I, I like jinxing us. What can I say? So before all of that, we thought we'd run through a couple of news headlines. Yes. Um, so firstly, and this is, I guess, pretty significant, the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy um, on their Facebook page, they made a post last night, and I thought maybe we'd read it out because it's a good thing just to, to mm. have a bit of an update on what's going on. So I read this. It says, it's been a rough couple of weeks with the Japarung Embassy front line. Anyone that has visited or spoken to those that have sat on country these past 16 months knows that we would never compromise 
those that know, those that have shown support or sat on country with us know that it's never been about a couple of trees. It has always been and still remains non-negotiable. Today we spoke directly to an employee of MRPV on Japarung who said that major works will commence tomorrow. This includes major machinery on country for intense digging purposes. The rep from MRPV also said that camps should pack up and move on because it won't take long after tomorrow's digging for the road to be laid. Compromise. What is compromise? Compromise means lowering, lowering your standards and going against what you believe in. Anything in the form of mediation is a compromise. Yep, life, life brings plenty of times when we will all have to compromise, but there are times when you stand your ground and say, absolutely not. Because some things are just not negoti- negotiable. We've been labelled losers if we remain on country, protecting country, protecting our fight for survival and protecting this song line that not, not, not only affects the Japarong. There, are, there is many a connection to this song line that most wouldn't consider and that should never have been compromised. Be great to see as many on country again as possible. Numbers are low because of the confusion of recent mitigation that has nothing to do with the embassy front line. The fight for survival is more in jeopardy than ever before and we need your support on country. So a pretty important update and I think a lot of us have been in that position of going, oh, maybe it's okay, it's, it's not like a red alert time, mm. so we don't need to be there. Yeah. So good reminder, I guess. Yeah. Um, and the other um, update that I wanted to share was from Change the Record, who we feature, or we, we interview a lot, uh, particularly Roxy, on Tuesday Breakfast. Um, they posted yesterday saying that Rebecca Sharkey, MP, to, uh, yesterday introduced a bill to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14. And Change the Record's co-chair, Cheryl Axelby was in Canberra to witness this historic moment and provide support for what, if supported by the government, would get children out of the quicksand of the youth justice system. So that seems like a pretty mm. significant development. That's as well. a huge development. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 14 is still pretty young. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah, insanely young. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, in, imprisonment in general is ridiculous, but 14, that's, 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 still a, that's still a child and that's already still a significant period of cognitive development and yeah. vulnerability yeah but that's a big step yeah big big step that we've got 10 year olds it's just like it's hard to wrap your head around mm. yeah so ten-year-olds being every time i hear that every time i hear that that we imprison 10 year olds it 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 never ceases to be mm. shocking and yeah. horrifying and sad yeah so hopefully we see some stuff come out of that yeah bill and i guess i thought you know we were also going to talk a little bit about what's been going on with um, the Kurds after the US pulled out of Syria. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, obviously there's this long history of Kurdish oppression in what really should be Kurdistan and was promised to the Kurds to be Kurdistan when the, the colonial British, who have a lot... A lot to uh, to apologise for, I think, including my existence. I wouldn't exist if it weren't for colonialism. <laughs> but um, sorry, I shouldn't really be making light of things. They, yeah, they. This long, long, long history in Syria. They fought alongside the U.S. forces and were able to push back ISIS quite successfully in certain regions, far more successfully so than than the U.S. And because of that, there are the Russians and Assad won't ever, you know, 
talk to them again, I suppose, mm-hmm. for having spoken, well, not spoken to, for having fought alongside the, the, the US. And now recently, Trump has declared that they are pulling out of Syria yeah. and are no longer going to be providing support to the Kurds. Then on the other side, we have Turkey and yeah. George. Well, and just to add to that, I think this, is, this shows you how when we have, you know, great powers intervening in conflicts in other states, it can, you know, it can really mess it up in huge ways. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, there's a kind of, you know, obviously no one's saying that the US was doing a good job there, but you can't just no, withdraw... No, people in a day and and not expect that something is going to happen and we're seeing now thousands of civilians are fleeing northern syria as turkey continues its assault against the kurdish forces so people Mm. are already dying Mm. and you know it's 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 terrific and it's unknown i guess as to what the international community will do because you have to remember that, that, that turkey has one of the worst histories of of abuse against against the Kurds. Mm. They don't even refer to them as Kurdish no, people. No, they call them Mountain Turks, yeah. which is, you know, meant mm. to frame them as, as you know, quote-unquote barbarians, I suppose. Mm. And it's, it's utterly, utterly horrifying what Turkey is doing. And the Kurds are once again being left alone by colonial forces who have come mm. along, used them, promised them things, and then yeah. left them. I mean, what the US is doing is just a continuation of what the British did, yeah, and you know what, you know Turkey being is is acting as a as an aggressive colonial force as well, and has been in the past been a colonial force. So, yeah, yeah, ongoing issue that we need to keep talking about, I guess, on the show. And we will definitely be getting someone on soon to talk about that. Yeah. To end on a light note, it was National Coming Out Day on the weekend. National Coming Out Day being the U.S., once again, U.S. colonialism, but perhaps in a slightly <laughs> different way, U.S. cultural colonialism in, in a positive sense. So National Coming Out Day was our last Saturday, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a really, really lovely moment to stop and think about this idea of having National Coming Out Day. I mean, leaving aside the fact that people shouldn't expect to have to come out, coming out is not the thing that makes you queer. It's not the thing that means that you are a queer person you don't have to come out to everybody it doesn't have to be a big public thing you can you only need to come out to yourself and you're queer and i know there's a lot of expectation within white queer communities to come out whereas very often for people who are queer people of color like you know myself for example coming out may not necessarily be something that you just do straight away from the rooftops it can be a very long process or a process that never occurs to your community or to your family and that doesn't denigrate your your queerness you are still just as queer so um 31 years ago on the anniversary of the national march on washington for lesbian and gay rights um national coming out day was declared as a reminder that one of our most basic tools is the power of coming out so in the u.s one in every two americans has someone close to them who is gay or lesbian I mean, you know, that's a very binary term. This, this is a quote from, uh, from the National, from the Human Rights Campaign. Um, for transgender people, that number is only one in ten. So, you know, coming out can be a powerful thing. For people who are in a position of being able to come out, it's such a powerful thing. One, to be able to live your truth as openly as you possibly can. And for another, to represent something to people who might not agree with you think that you are living a quote-unquote wrong lifestyle or for people who need to see that as a representation and I, I definitely saw that when I used to be a teacher and I 
Um, I'm no longer a teacher, but I was a teacher years ago in a previous life, and I came out as queer to my students. And I had a lot of students who are people of color, who maybe, many of whom, you know, young kids, a lot of young people have never met, knowingly met another queer person. And for them to have a person who A, looked like them, and B, was openly queer and very, very vocally queer, was a very powerful thing, not only for the other queer kids in the school, and then, you know, it, it, not I'm saying that I kick-started it, but, but it was at a time in the school mm. when things were growing and developing and more kids were starting to come out and we started implementing things like safe schools, but also for kids to be able to have someone they could come and ask questions of, like, what does it mean to be queer? And, you know, I, I had this wonderful group of um, year eight Muslim kids who would who we just would have these great conversations where they'd ask me about like my life and obviously within the bounds of decency we'd talk about it in terms of having a partner and that kind of thing and it was just really really wonderful to be able to engage with a bunch of different communities and know that I am the word role model I'm not sure because you don't want to think of yourself as a role mm. model but in some ways when you're standing in front of a group of young people you are a role model mm. whether you like it or not and being able to use something about myself and my privilege of knowing that I could come out and do it safely as a way to get people on side was extremely extremely powerful mm. and even things like it was around the time that Caitlyn Jenner came out and being able to use her coming out story despite all the problems that Caitlyn Jenner brings along with her in terms of binary stuff and race and whatever mm. and privilege having people coming out publicly and being able to use them as ways to have these difficult conversations with people mm. I think it's pretty cool yeah and that's my coming out monologue so that's cool that, that went off on one yeah. I think so <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and yeah maybe we should say to people listening who are LGBTQA plus that celebrate you and wh whether you choose to do that or not mm. and that that's valid and absolutely yeah, good you time to remember that queer whether you come out or not Ooh. but if you're able to come out it's a beautiful thing to be able to do mm -hmm. shall we go to a track absolutely this is imddb with urban jazz a little bit of a language warning on this one enjoy you're listening to tuesday breakfast on 3cr that was imddb with urban jazz very very cool cruisy song that one I just want to say the way you said that, George, was so jazz because you were like, "You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR." It's like it's like you really went with that jazz feel. I was I was there for it. Makes it. you feel really relaxed and just like. Oh, I want to announce Tuesday Breakfast like that all the time. <laughs> just to have a chill morning. Get your Tuesday just in the groove. Yeah. And now, what do we have, Ayan? Yes, so we have the interview with Maxine. The Beniba interview. Clark, obviously the interview. It's not just any regular. It's, <laughs> it is Maxine Beniba Clark. <laughs> okay, so yes, so we hope you really enjoy this interview. And don't forget, if after this interview you'd love to learn more, you can go check out um, writersvictoria.org.au. Org.au, that's writersvictoria.org.au to purchase ticket for her event on writing and risk. Maxine Beniba Clark on the state of the writing nation. My name is Maxine Beniba Clark. Um, I'm a writer of short fiction, non fiction, memoir, and poetry. I also write children's picture books. And I currently work as Poet Laureate for the Saturday paper. So the reason we have you on today. Um, we've been trying to get you for so long, so we're very excited that you're able to come on. Okay, so you're coming on to talk about this excellent event called On Writing and Risk. 
Um, I was just thinking about, you know, these all these conferences and these events that are about risk or about dangerous writing. And I noticed that we never talk about the people making those labels, like the people who get to decide what writing mm-hmm. is risky. Why do you mm-hmm. think, Maxine, it's important to consider who decides those labels? Uh, well, I think it's really important because a lot of the time we're talking about, um, a lot of the time the people who decide those labels are talking about the personal risk to the writer. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes that can be simply the risk of criticism, mm. that they're saying things they perceive people won't like, but sometimes it can be more than that. It can actually be, you know, a physical threat. It can be a threat to well-being. It can be a threat to your career. It can be a threat to your community. And so I think, um, you know, depending on what the event is and who is actually speaking, that can actually frame the entire discussion. Mm. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's really important to consider you know, whether it's arts workers, whether it's programmers, or whether it's the writers themselves um, who's actually setting those titles. Right. And I've noticed, at least when it comes to Australian writing, there's always the concept of the Australian, quote-unquote, Australian writer. Um, why is the notion of a quintessential Australian reader or writer problematic? Well, I mean, Australia is such a diverse country, Um, You know, when I tend to think of Australian writers, I think first of the Indigenous canon, you know, of the first peoples of Australia Mm. and of writing by those writers. Um, And, you know, other people may think of uh, people within the Anglo-Australian tradition like Patrick White or Banjo Patterson. Um, And so I think this idea that it can be encapsulated in that one term is, is... um, in a sense, very difficult. Um, at the same time, I guess I'm weary of ever saying that anything is for or by um, a quintessential mm. XYZ, whether it's an Australian writer or an American writer, because I think there is no way of knowing who your readership is going to be when mm. we're talking about readers. Um, and just because you think, oh, I'd love this particular community or this particular group to get their hands on this book or this is who I'm making this book for, you may actually find that on publication it finds a completely different audience. Um, and so I think preempting is always, in a way, limiting. And your book, Foreign Soil, which um, I remember reading when it came out, and also going to your... Um talk at readings which was really exciting I remember thinking oh my god an Afro slash Caribbean diaspora writer in Australia like that's that was very incredible so that's side note when that book when you were looking for a publisher um, one of the reasons it was rejected was that the Australian reader wasn't ready for such characters right what do you think they meant by that I mean I think Unfortunately, publishing, most publishing anywhere is a commercial enterprise. You know, there are very few publishers that put things out just because they think, ah, this probably won't sell, but it deserves to be out there. Mm. Um, And that's not necessarily a comment on publishers themselves. It's just, I guess, the finances and the mechanics of of putting a product out because you want it to sell. And I think because I was writing about predominantly African diaspora characters, Mm. um, it was a book of 10 or so short stories, um, most of which were set or partially set in other countries. So probably about three of the 10 
were completely or partially set in Australia. And so I think the feeling was, who is going to be the audience for this? Mm. Um, which I think is very strange because Australians are massive consumers of international literature. Right. But yeah. it was this sense that, you know, you are Australian, but this is not an Australian, in inverted commas, book. Um, and I think also it was probably quite a politically abrasive book for Australia. Um, you know, you had a story that was set in the middle of the Tottenham riots with a young uh, black kid kind of getting caught up in the riots. There was a story set in the Black Panther squats of uh, 1960s Brixton. And so I think content-wise, it was kind of a combination of the content and the fact that I was an Australian writer that seemed to deter people. Mm. I mean, that makes sense. But I guess it wasn't too challenging because... Now your books are part of the VCE and English literary syllabus. Mm-hmm. Um, Maxine, why do you think your stories attract such a wide readership? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Love that answer. I ask Honest. myself that every day. <laughs> Look, you know, I think, you know, Fine Soil as a book was a very slow burn. So it was a book of short fiction, usually speaks books of short fiction written by Australian authors maybe sell a thousand copies in the first year and that's considered you know a book that's doing really really well and Foreign Soil kind of sold maybe about 3,000 copies in the first year so it didn't set the world on fire but it's kind of continued to do that you know almost every year since it's come out Mm. Um, so it's been this kind of just really slow burn as people gradually found out about the book or passed it on to their friends or, you know, told their family members about it. Um, And I think it really, um, Australian booksellers really hand-sold the book for me. I would get friends kind of calling me saying, I was in a bookstore and the bookseller tried to sell me your book, (laughs) you know. So I think it, you know, people just kind of fell in love with it and and kept passing it on. Um, And I was very lucky. Mm. Um, I think it's very rare that that happens. Um, And I also think when we read or when I read, I read to step into different worlds. Yes. You know, and so even as a child, it was like, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> you know, just something that's completely different from your own life yeah. and experience. And I think, you know, potentially publishers underestimate readers. Yes. But, you know, ultimately you want a book that's going to change you in some way. In preparation for this interview, I Googled the word risk and I found via the Cambridge Online Dictionary. So it defines it as the possibility of something bad happening. Um, with that in mind, why should, you know, when I think about writers of colour and other marginalised groups, take that leap? And what advice would you have for them? Um, you know, I suppose in a sense that I'm that the talk is focused around risk, it is partly about the risk that the writer faces mm-hmm. when they put work out there that's maybe cuts against the grain or that's maybe there's going to be potentially personal recriminations. It's partly about publishing risk, you know, that something bad being a loss of money or not being able to sell the book. And, you know, it's partly about, I guess, the risk of, the risk the writer takes in, you know, there is a potential that books can do harm, not just to the author, but Mm. to, you know, a community that the book purports to represent. So I guess I'm looking at all of those things. I think in terms of writers of colour, In Australia, 
you know, there have obviously been, you know, in the last few years, quite high-profile cases of writers being singled out for their work or for comments they've made and, and professionally slandered and things like that. But I also think we need to recognise our privilege in Australia. Um, I get a lot of young people particularly saying to me, how can you write the things that you write? Um, you know, not in a negative way, but, you know, don't, aren't you scared that people are going to criticise you? You're scared that they're going to say terrible things about yeah. you? Are you scared of recriminations with your family? And, and my response is, look, I live in Australia. <laughs> if I live in Australia in 2019... And although there are obviously potential recriminations online or potential, you know, people doxing you and putting your phone number out there and all those kinds of things, that, I don't... Sorry? You know, I feel like there are societies now in which you, there would be a knock on your door and you would be jailed. Right. You know, or you'd disappear in the middle of the night and you'd never see your family again or there'd be some kind of state-sanctioned recrimination that was quite physical and had lasting consequences mm. um, and so I think there is a big risk, you know, there's emotional risk there's a psychological risk um, but I think we also need to realise that because we live in a democracy like Australia there is also a duty For 45 years, Friends of the Earth has been mobilising communities to resist the destructive industries like coal, gas, nuclear, and to transform our world into somewhere better. Come celebrate with us as we celebrate 45 years of creative resistance. 25th of October at the Gasometer, doors open at 8pm with a welcome to country at 9pm. The lineup includes Alicia Joy, Hello Tut Tut, Mortisville, Claddy, and more. You know it'll be fun because it's Friends of the Earth. See you there. You can get tickets online or at our famous food co-op at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Friends of the Earth are a proud supporter of 3CR. Looking to connect with your local community and do something rewarding? Well, volunteering to lead a neighbourly ride could be exactly what you're after. The short 40-minute group rides are for all ages and ride levels. Help people build their confidence, feel supported while safely exploring the local areas of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy and Northcote by bike. Volunteers receive free ride leader training, so go to neighbourlyride.com to contact us about volunteering. A 3CR supporter. Kevin Hines Grow delivers gardening and nature-based programs to people of all ages and all abilities. Our programs provide great opportunities for positive personal development and well-being. The Kevin Hines Grow 40th Anniversary Spring Festival will be held on Saturday the 19th of October, 9am to 3pm at 39 Weatherby Road, Doncaster. Come along and stock up on a huge variety of tomatoes and vegetable seedlings, fruit trees, perennials and more at our community nursery. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. The interview that you just heard was with Maxine Beniba-Clark, the awesome Maxine Beniba-Clark, and it was about her event on writing and risk. 
So if you're if you're interested in that event, you can purchase tickets on writersvictoria.org.au. That's writersvictoria.org.au. Um, and the event is this Wednesday. Um, and it is at, let me, I'm trying to look for the time, but yes, there is a time, 7 to <laughs> 8 p.m. So if you're interested, get in. And we'd like to dedicate this song to Maxine. Thank you so much for giving us your time this week. And please come on the show anytime to talk about anything at all. Uh, this track is called Boss Queen by Nayasha. <laughs> Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labour Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Fawn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. Six years I've been in prison. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things like And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au 
forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming. Um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like, it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with me, Zoya, George and Ayan. The time is 7.43am. Before uh, those community service announcements, you heard Boss Queen by Nyasha, a fantastic song played in honour of Maxine Vanilla Clark, the greatest interview you have achieved. We're going to say that every single, like, every single show now. We're going to say we've got Maxine. And in the studio, we have what turns out to be a close personal friend of Nyasha. And that's not even a joke. That's literally <laughs> true. She came in the studio and went, oh, that's, not, that's, that's my friend. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> but but she's not in to talk about Nyasha, although we could instead. We could, we could talk which, about Nyasha. You know, we, we, which we've been doing this, you know, for the past three minutes. But um, it's uh, her name is Zoe Conliffe. She's a researcher in gender and crowdsourcing technology at Monash University and CEO and founder of She's a Crowd, an online database of women's stories aimed at preventing gender-based violence. Good morning, Zoe. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming in. This is this sort of topic is something that's really that I find very close to my heart. Like exploring people's experiences of spaces and how that interacts with technology and gender. So what is She's a Crowd and how does it work? Yeah, so She's a Crowd is a feminist tech startup and we have a digital online platform where anyone anywhere in the world can share their story. The story that you share, um, which you can actually do if you go to she'sacrowd.com, Anyone can do it, like, right now if you want. The, short, the story you share basically goes into our database. So we collect um, your incident details of what might have happened in terms of sexual assault, any form of gender-based violence, including um, domestic violence, any form of kind of sexism enforcement of gender roles and other factors that may have intersected with that, such as race or gender or sexuality and all those types of things. And so the story that you share... Um, is geotagged and time-stamped. And so you might be sharing something that just happened or you might be sharing something that happened years ago. And we've had a range of those things shared. Um, the idea is that women want to share their stories. We saw that with Me Too. We see that all the time. We know that we want to share our stories. And um, a lot of the time we don't want to report those stories to the police because we don't trust the police or we don't necessarily want to hold our perpetrator to account or we don't actually feel like it's report worthy um, and over 80% of sexual assaults here in Australia do indeed go unreported um, and so the idea is that there is a safe space where you can share your story but that that story is not just there for the purposes of social media but is actually becoming the world's biggest database for the prevention of gender-based violence and so that's what we are. So how does it work? How does this app con contribute to the prevention of gender-based violence? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess to answer that, I can talk a little bit about how I came about mm. to start it. Um, I was working in gender advocacy 
um, for a large international NGO, like an aid agency. And my job was to basically advocate for change in the gender equality space using stories of women. And through that, um, I created a tool called Free to Be, which was quite successful in Melbourne. We piloted it in 2016. Um, that tool allowed us to collect a lot of data, basically about women's experiences in the city, and we created a map of those experiences. And it just transformed the way we worked. All of a sudden, decision makers wanted to come and work with us because they realised that they didn't have this data. And that's when I realised oh gosh, we've got this huge data gap in gender-based violence and we are literally the only ones that have this particular type of data about this particular issue and all of these decision makers actually do want to make policy change in this area and address this huge problem. They just don't know how because they don't have the data. If you can't understand a problem, you can't fix the problem. And so that's how She's a Crowd came about. So what we see in um, the digital landscape of women's safety apps is a lot of the more of the same old responsive technology like have this app which is a safety button to call for help or where we can monitor where you're going and that is actually I believe perpetuating existing power structures of monitoring women's behavior or putting the onus on women to change the way that they move around the city and the way that they act what we're trying to do is create data to properly understand spatially how violence plays out so that we can address the problem in a longer term preventative way. So the way that that the kinds of projects that we've done so far are as simple as innovative lighting for laneways in Melbourne. So informing council of where to do these innovative lighting projects, um, particularly around campuses, university campuses. Um, And it can range to working with public transport authorities around how they best deploy their resources to ensure that women are safe when they're travelling on trains and between different stations. And then it can go up to policy change with NGOs so or other um, government bodies, so um, them being informed about the next policy changes that they should be making in this area. That is so, so fascinating. That Obviously, data is such an important thing that we need to develop policy and that, that policymakers need in order to understand the stories of, yeah. of not just their own inherent biases, which are built under a sort of, you know, racist capitalist patriarchal system. But in view of it being a racist capitalist patriarchal system, how who can access this data? What level of privacy does this data have? You know, for people who mm-hmm. want to share their stories, how do they know mm-hmm. that their stories aren't going to be used, you know, inappropriately, I suppose? Exactly. So that's our number one concern and has been our number one kind of consideration in building the tool. So the storytelling platform is completely anonymous. So you only share, there's no um, compulsory um, questions. So you only share as much as you feel comfortable with Um and you do not have to where I guess our tool is unique in that you do not have to create any sort of login function. So most other apps um, you would ever go on, you have to create that login. Mm. So your identity will always be tied to your story. Mm. We do not have that. And 
furthermore, I guess when we go in, when it goes into our database, it's completely secure, completely anonymous, and completely confidential. And the subset of the data that we do decide to publish is completely removed from any identifying factors. Yeah. So those are just some of the things that yeah. we're doing. So it's completely anonymous. Yeah, completely anonymous. <laughs> so getting that caveat out of the way. Unfortunately, we're going to we're running out of time, but I just have some questions that I just I'm so excited to ask, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm really interested to know what you think. Um, about the role that technology plays in the democratizing of spaces or kind of what you see as the future of technology-driven activism and feminist action? That's such a huge question. I know, it's a big question. It. So that's actually that's what my PhD is um, looking at. So exactly the democratize, like the digital democratization of women's stories. Um, I am fascinated by it. So what I'm looking at is the old, you know, the old consciousness-raising processes of the 1960s mm. that were really popular in feminist liberation movements um, back then. I am finding that those processes are really applicable to feminist technologies because what we're seeing is the ability for people to share their stories and actually be heard um, and actually connect over those stories. So even thinking of like the hashtag, you can group stories under categories and then share in that way. But what I'm really interested in is the fact that just the way cities have always been designed and built by men and for men, what we're seeing is that digital spaces like your social medias have been built by men and for mm. men. So how can we create a feminist internet? And that's what She's a Crowd is really trying to do, is what would the internet look like if it was built by women and for women? And for other marginalised people, we really need to understand how to do that because this is the future of space. This is the future of the world that we're going to be living in. That is, oh, I'm just, I could talk to you. I could make this just the feminist internet Well, let's do show. it. We'll do it another time. <laughs> but Zoe Condor, thank you so much for coming in. If people want to find out more about She's a Crowd or share their story, mm -hmm. how can they do that? Yeah, so you can just click share your story on our website, which is at She's a Crowd, like three's a crowd, but with a she, dot com. Um, that's probably the best thing to do. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, which our handle is She's a Crowd. And I'm always here for questions and yeah, so just get in touch. Fantastic. Zoe Condor, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03 9419 8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're racing through today because we have a lot of important people to speak with this morning. On the line is Jill Gallagher. Jill Gallagher is a Gundijamara woman from Western Victoria and the Treaty Advancement Commissioner. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jill. Thank you for having me. So you're here to talk to us about the Future Dreaming Festival, which sounds very cool. But to start off with, it would be really nice to hear about a bit about you and the work that you're doing at the moment as the Treaty Advancement Commissioner. Okay, no problem. 
Uh, I'm not sure whether your listeners uh, remember, but back in uh, 2016, uh, the state government held a forum uh, and invited Aboriginal people from across Victoria to actually um, come and talk about what is self-determination. Um, um, and the people, our mob that turned up to that forum basically said true self-determination is being able to negotiate treaties and the ultimate recognition of um, our communities as the first peoples of this country. And that was quite exciting. Um, I mean, we all know that that's not a new call. We know that we've had our leaders in the past and our elders in the past and even current who've always demanded treaties and advocated for treaties. Um, and um, But what was different about this back in 2016 was that we, we had a government that didn't just dismiss that call. They said, let's talk about it. Mm. Let's see how we can do it. And that's when the journey really started. And when I heard, because I was... At the time, I was the CEO of that show, and um, and um, I had a colleague, work colleague, come running into my office. Jill, Jill, have you seen the um, the uh, media release that the uh, Andrews government just put out? And I said, no, what was it? And they said, they, well, they put treaties on the table. Well, <clears throat> I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So, and I knew that I had to be involved. So this is where we've been on this journey since 2016. Um, we had to work out. Well, where to? Now that we have a government, they need to have a counterpart. They need to have a voice or a body that they need to talk to. Mm. And hence the, the, um, the road to treaty started. And look, to cut a long story short, I don't know, I can be here all day. So, and I do tend to, I do tend to waffle on. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. We love it. <laughs> um, but, you know, a work, just to cut a long story short, a working group was established that can, consisted of 16 Aboriginal people from across the states, all traditional owners in their own right, and they had to work out a way forward, and I was involved in that. And then they they um, designed and developed the, the Treaty Commission because some of the criticisms we're getting from government, from our own community, was um, we're, you know, too close to government. So an independent commissioner... Um, uh, was established and I applied for it and I got it and my role is not to negotiate treaties. My role is to actually design and develop uh, the Aboriginal representative body which will then take us to the next stage. Right. Yeah, and I, I guess it should, obviously it should never have taken until 2016 for that to happen. But... Oh. You know, it's, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what has happened in the last couple of years, how this has developed, and with the work that you've been doing with this independent yep. body. Yep. So what we've been doing is we've been um, designing, which is now known as the First People's Assembly of Victoria. Um, we went out, um, even before the commission was established, the working group did many consultations with Aboriginal people in Victoria, um, took some feedback on board. Then the working group established, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, a community assembly. And that was um, uh, getting Aboriginal people from across together beside the working group uh, to answer some policy questions. You know, if we need a statewide body, what's it going to look like? How are we going to get it? Is it government appointed? 
uh, representatives? Is it a mixture? Is it a statutory authority? And all these questions that needed to be answered. And, of course, everyone's got different opinions. <laughs> um, but anyway, what we ended up with was very clear directions of what, how we should, um, our statewide body. Um, and um, the community assembly worked for, I think, about five weeks on answering a couple of questions. Uh, we were advised that the Victorian Aboriginal communities want a democratic process. We want to be able to elect our own representatives. Um, so we started designing on those design principles. We started designing the First Peoples Assembly. And then we put out the first, the first here's our design. Um, and uh, we got a lot of feedback. Um, and with that feedback, we actually changed the design. So we kept going back to the community, putting out, well, this is what we've heard. Is this right? No, it's not right. Do it again. Hmm. Um, so what we ended up with was we wanted a democratic process, our own elections, and the community was very loud and clear. We don't want it connected to mainstream, um, you know, like the mainstream electoral role. So we had to design and build our own electorate, our own electoral role, and um, uh, the First People's Assembly of Victoria. It is a democratic process. There's 32 seats on this body. Eleven of those seats uh, are reserved for existing traditional owner entities. Don't you worry, baby. Don't you worry, baby. We're on the train now. Here on the track, the diesel's humming. You better watch out. You got another beat you're drumming. Didn't you know? Didn't you know? Didn't you know? Didn't you know now?
For 45 years, Friends of the Earth has been mobilising communities to resist the destructive industries like coal, gas, nuclear, and to transform our world into somewhere better. Come celebrate with us as we celebrate 45 years of creative resistance. 25th of October at the Gasometer, doors open at 8pm with a welcome to country at 9pm. The lineup includes Alicia Joy, Hello Tut Tut, Mortisville, Claddy, and more. You know it'll be fun because it's Friends of the Earth. See you there. You can get tickets online or at our famous food co-op at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Friends of the Earth are a proud supporter of 3CR. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 8.08. That song we just heard was Don't You Worry by The Ink. Incredible electric fields who are playing this Saturday at a fundraiser at Coburg Velodrome, I believe, which is going to be amazing. And oh, oh, my God. So up now we have Ali Hogg from Queer Space. Good morning, Ali. Hello. How are you going? I'm very well. Thank you. Ali is from Rainbow Rebellion. And Ali, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Rainbow Rebellion? Yeah, so... I actually, yeah, as well as working for Queer Space, I have been a long-term activist. So I was the convener of Equal Love, the campaign for marriage equality. And then after we won marriage equality, the government then decided to put forth some bills, some proposed bills to then peel back some of those wins. So then we formed Rainbow Rebellion to because there's, we're expecting to see a number of things come up over the next few years that I think we need to fight back around. Mm, so Rainbow Rebellion is a more sort of activist-driven yeah. queer group. Yeah, that's right. Fantastic. And what kinds of activities has Rainbow Rebellion been involved in or intends to be involved yeah, in? Yeah, so so far we've had one rally, and we had it was the, in the week that the bills were proposed. So we'd had a bit of a look at how... Um, they plan to discriminate against people and using religion as an excuse to discriminate against people. And the bills were quite a lot worse than we thought they were going to be. So we had a rally out the front of the State Library and it probably had maybe up to 500 people. So not a huge amount, but considering it was our first rally and it was in the first week of the bills, it was pretty decent. But I think there still needs to be a lot more talk about the rallies and also about the issues so people can get their head around it. So you're talking about the religious discrimination bills that yeah. the, liberal, the federal liberal government intends to introduce before the end of the year. We've spoken about these a few times on the show, but just briefly, are you able to summarise what these bills are and why they're so odious, one might say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a series of three bills and some of the most concerning ones are the things like the con- people are really concerned about conscientious objection, and that already exists for a couple of there's a couple of exemptions that um, where people are allowed to use conscientious objection in healthcare, and that's um, things like abortion and assisted dying. But now they want to extend that across the board, so you will be able to conscientiously object to treating a trans person or conscientious if you th- if you can somehow say that it's got to do with your religious belief it can um affect women and people in all sorts of ways it can affect people who um think that it can even go back to affecting people who might think that interracial marriage is wrong for instance and um yeah there's like the possibilities are endless. And one of the things we're particularly concerned about at Queer Space is 
how it's going to affect um, a lot of our clients because already we saw we did a survey over midsummer and we saw that particularly a lot of trans people don't are already reluctant to seek medical help and services and that reluctance is already there when there are protections in place and these protections being um, threatened is can only make the mental health of many trans and gender diverse people a lot worse um, and and broader. So it's quite worrying. And so from Queer Spaces' perspective, we are like very like extremely concerned, and it also can have an impact on our staff as well. So I think that. Um, yeah, across the board, I think people need to come out and do what they can to try to oppose these bills. For sure, and I think you definitely touched on something there as well when you mentioned people being able to oppose, say, interracial marriage, that this is not something that just affects the queer community. Mm. It affects so many different communities, and even communities of different religions who may not agree with other religions. You know, it, there is danger there, I think. I mean... Potentially, I'm not. I'm not speaking as a legislator or someone who fully understands legal structures, but it just does sound like there's there's a lot of danger being opened up there, and thinking about all those different intersectionalities and how it's going to impact everybody. And so, what is Rainbow Rebellion specifically doing or going to do to oppose this bill? Yeah. So our next rally is going to be on October 26th at 1 p.m. at the State Library, and we so we're doing. Um, that's going to be our public submission. So everybody's, most organisations and individuals have put in their submissions. And it's been quite interesting how many people across the board have opposed it, including religious organisations are opposing these proposed bills. But So we want people to come out on the streets and protest. So if, yeah, if as many people can get the word out, we think that um, it's a really good, it sends a really good sign to the politicians that we oppose this, that just because we, um, just because we like one marriage equality and they want to give a free kick to the conservative right in Australia, we want to show that we're still prepared to come out and fight and we're not going to go away because we're still not equal, especially if these laws get through. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've, we've been given the most basic thing mm. and now there's so many more things that we need to, that's we right. need to keep fighting for. So that's first. The 1 p.m. State Library, 26th of October. That's right. And you said that's your public submission. Um, I think you just said before we went on air that the Labor government has, the Victorian Labor government has also made a submission. Yeah, so we've been putting a lot of pressure on the Labor government to come out and say something. The federal Labor government have stood pretty silent on this, which is really disappointing. And there has been a fair bit of pressure on Daniel Andrews to come out, and they came out yesterday saying that they did put a submission, and their submission is around that conversion practices can be reopened up um, under these laws, because the thing is, these are federal, and so a lot of, like, Daniel Andrews moved to get rid of conversion practices, and then the federal laws will override a lot of state laws as well, mm. and so that's going to affect people in Victoria, in Tasmania, and across the board, so it's good that at least um, the state Labor government have come out and said something. Absolutely. I just have one more question. In an interview yesterday on ABC AM, Christian Porter said... My view is that the religious groups, largely speaking, want this protection. 
LGBTI groups want more restriction of speech and less protection for religion. Putting aside the fact that, for example, you said religious groups such as the Uniting Church mm. have come out in opposition to this bill, um, how do you respond to suggestions that queer groups are trying to curb freedom of speech? I think it's pretty laughable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that it's like it's pretty clear when you look through the bill that this is not about um, this is not about freedom of speech at all. It is very obviously about people being allowed to discriminate in the guise of religious belief and the broadness of the bill is just so dangerous. Mm. And so I think that, um, like, the real persecuted religions in the world are not white Christians and that want to discriminate against, like, queers and women. It's um, Muslim, like, Muslim, the Muslim faith is, like, one of the most persecuted. And um, I think that it needs to, like, there's and there's not one mention of like ways that, like there's no mention in any of the bills or in any of the commentary on how religious people are oppressed by LGBT people. And mm. I think that um, opening up such broad discrimination against such a vast majority of, or vast amount mm. of people is completely dangerous. And I think that, um, I think that it's silly to think that we can be accused of silencing anybody. For sure. Ali Hogg, thank you so much for coming on to talk about about um, Rainbow Rebellion and about your protest against religious discrimination bills that will be taking place. 1 p.m. State Library, 26th of October. If we want to find out more about Rainbow Rebellion, how can we do that? You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Under Rainbow Rebellion? Yep, just search for it and it should come up. There is a, a clothing store also called Rainbow Rebellion, <laughs> so don't get confused. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. Ali, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, powering through with our final interview for today. I just need to give a content warning. We will be talking about gendered violence and particularly the experiences of migrant women. So if, uh, if this is something that you don't want to listen to, you can tune out for the remainder of the show. Uh, also, if you are experiencing anything around gendered violence, there are some support numbers. In Touch supports well, women of colour specifically, and that number is 1-800-755-988. You can also call WIRE Women's Information for any issue that you're experiencing, and the number is 1-300-134-130. On the line is Jatinda Kaur, who is a Brisbane-based social worker. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jatinda. Thank you. So you were recently featured on the feed of uh, SBS show talking about the experiences of migrant women who are on um, particular kinds of visas and experiencing gendered violence. So, but firstly, before we kind of get into a bit more about that, I'd be interested to hear more about who you are and the work that you do. Well, thank you for reaching out to me um, through CR. Um, I'm a social worker. Um, my background or cultural heritage is that my parents are born in India. Um, I was born in the UK and have 
lived in Australia for nearly 25 years. Um, I've worked across a number of sectors, child protection, family violence, policy, mental health, and even in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. Um, so I have a keen focus on social justice and being an advocate. Um, that's been a consistent passion of mine in my career. So um, I guess I hadn't intentionally thought about working in the family violence space, but uh, being a migrant woman, woman of colour, a woman of faith, um, I, over recent years, um, started to see and observe um, significant issues within um, the migrant community and also within my own community of the Indian diaspora or Indian communities here in Australia around family violence. So that's kind of what prompted me or mm. sort of um, led me down this area of work. Mm. And I guess based on your identity and your experience, you're quite well placed to help us understand what's going on at the moment for migrant women. So for women who are on temporary partner visas or prospective marriage visas and are experiencing family violence, what, what tends to happen? What kind of violence is taking place in these relationships? So in a lot of traditional cultures, so whether they're Indian, Asian, Chinese, um, or even Middle Eastern cultures, there will be a preference to bring out, um, in the context of arranged or match-made um, marriages, um, a bring out a bride from their country of origin. So uh, under that context, you'll have a spouse or a fiancé who will come out and then get married to a husband who has Australian citizenship or permanent residency. Now, um, the husband is the main sponsor of that um, fiancé or spouse. So essentially, he can control all aspects of her life. So a lot of these women who come under a temporary spouse, he's a holder or fiancé, um, have very limited or no English. Um, have very limited knowledge about um, the Australian social welfare system, um, very limited or no knowledge of um, the laws that exist here that protect their rights. And um, so husbands typically um, can use that to their advantage and then, um, you know, sort of use immigration as a threat. Well, if you don't do as I say, I will cancel your visa, I Mm. will deport you back, I will, you know, um, send you back to your family, I will tell them that you could not make me happy anymore. Um, So just like, you know, used goods, um, that that can be some of the narrative that these women get told. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess we have such a big problem in Australia for anyone to access services and legal support and so you can imagine what the additional uh, barriers are to people that um, are, um, have migrated from another country and you know might not have uh, might not speak English and all those factors that you've mentioned and since yeah. you've been working you know you've been working in this space for such a long time I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how this has changed you know is it, is it, is it more prevalent now than it used to be you know what what has gone on in the last decade or so in your experience um, if I look back so I've done a fair bit of uh, review of the research literature so some of the earlier research work that I was able to come across was this notion of 
the Asian bride or, um, you know, the ordered brides from the Philippines, the Filipinos, where you had white Anglo-Australian men marrying Asian women and bringing them over, whether it was post-Vietnam War or in the 80s or 90s. And then we had some of the European um, women coming across. So this phenomena is not new, where um, whether it's, you know, Australian, Anglo-Australian men bringing out, um, you know, other cultured women or uh, migrant men bringing out women from their country of origin. Um, I think what the key challenge is and what the consistent theme is that the issue that were raised back in the 1980s and the 90s around the vulnerability of these women that are brought out on temporary spouse visa holders did exist in 2019. Mm. That um, even though we have all of this awareness raising and, you know, the, the fourth national action plan, um, we had the Royal Commission into Family Violence in Victoria, um, which had, you know, uh, a lot of recommendations for migrant and refugee communities and faith communities. They, there's still some, and there still will be a cohort of women who don't get any information mm. and who will be kept in, like, servitude conditions. So um, the change is that I think now, in 2019, there may be more awareness. Professional frontline responders are becoming... <clears throat> are getting trained more to recognise um, that, you know, women on temporary status visa holders are more vulnerable. I mean, I do a lot of work with police. And certainly right. I've seen a big shift in um, how police respond now to family violence compared to four or five years ago. Before it was just seen as a private matter. Now it, it is, you know, it's a priority. It's a significant issue. And, you know, there's more emphasis also to encourage um, criminal complaints as well as the domestic violence order process. Mm. And, um, oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, no, you go. Oh, yeah. just, just to jump in, I guess a good segue to, to the next question, thinking about what organisations are doing currently, because your, your work uh, specialises in supporting women of colour. Do you think that general family violence organisations are adequately prioritising the needs of migrant women and understanding the additional forms of oppression that they are facing? Or do you think that they need to be better equipped? And if so, in what ways does that need to happen? Look, I think the the biggest issue that's being faced by the the family violence sector is that we're seeing huge demand for service, okay? So with all the awareness raising that's happening and all of the media coverage, it means that more and more women are coming forward to seek help. So when you've already got a system, a service system that is inundated, it is very difficult for you know, say a generalist worker to then take the time um, required to be more culturally responsive to specific vulnerable groups. Um, yes, I, I do specialise and I have pushed quite strongly that there needs to be more culturally specific services um, and, you know, ensuring that bilingual workers are recruited so that, you know, you mitigate that language barrier, that cultural barrier, and even religious barrier that, that exists in our service system. Because I can tell you that for a lot of our immigrant 
faith women, um, they really do struggle with the mainstream. Um, I see it classically when they're having, uh, when police respond on the first incident and they haven't used an interpreter um, in the initial mm. interview process. Um, you've asked that interesting question around multi-dimensional forms yes. of oppression. Um, unfortunately, I would say that that still exists. So institutional racism still exists. Um, white privilege still exists. So when we still have um, systems and structures that still maintain that patriarchy and, and privilege, um, women of colour um, and women of faith or, you know, migrant or refugee backgrounds, they will struggle to navigate the system. And the classics are that, you know, we've got a legal and court system which is very intimidating. So I've supported a number of our victims in the court process. And I can tell you, just sitting in front of a judge, yeah. that is not an easy process. Yeah. Um, and the perpetrators is right there. They can still, you know, quietly try to intimidate the women. It's, even though, despite all of the rhetoric, um, it's not always a safe place. And then the other challenge that our women face is that... Um, threats to family and loved ones in their in, back home in their mm. country of origin. Um, if you don't withdraw your case, I will hurt your parents. I will hurt your siblings. And clearly uh, organisations need to understand these additional forms of harm that are being perpetrated against migrant women. I, I have so many questions to ask you this morning, and I know that we're pretty much out of time, but just to wrap up, what kinds of supports and options are currently available for migrant women? So for anyone listening who is in a situation like this or who knows someone that's in a situation like this, what can, what can they do to support themselves or to offer support for people around them? Okay, so uh, Department of Home Affairs or the Immigration Department has developed a number of resources um, to clearly now um, indicate that any woman on a temporary spouse visa holder or a fiancé visa holder does not need to remain in an abusive relationship. So there are a number of fact sheets that they have updated and put onto their website. And recently they came across to a meeting and provided us with those. Um, if you type into Google, um, there's a family safety pack which has been translated into 46 languages. And then you've got the national number 1-800-RESPECT. Sorry. Thank you, Jatinda. We'll, we'll share those links. We, we, I, sorry sure. to cut you off. Thank you so That's much for okay. your time and for sharing your Thank knowledge you. on this important issue. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.